G'day everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Road Less Travel Podcast. Thanks very much for your company, great to have you along with us as we head into our 15th and 16th episodes of the show that began earlier on in this year, 2021, and we are really grateful to have your company in a little journey that we're taking along the Road Less Travel, wherever that may take us, who knows, but what we try and achieve each week is to give you a glimpse of places and people that you can see out on the road, uh, various little towns and perhaps places that you might not necessarily have heard of before, little known tracks off and roads and little hamlets and villages and towns all along the way that uh, sometimes are off the beaten track but open up a wide opportunity of learning and some fantastic places to visit. And, of course, places to stay along the way. There's plenty of accommodation if, you've, if you're into hotels, motels, uh, off-the-grid camping, um, caravan parks, plenty of places where you can pull up and either stay overnight or extend your visit as long as you want. There's, there's just uh, ample opportunities out there. So this week's episode, we have headed westward bound to WA, a place that I had uh, probably 25, 26 years of my life living there before uh, relocating back to my town of birth being Melbourne. So over to WA, and of course, the capital city is Perth. When you leave Perth, the northern part of Perth, you start to head in, well, it's on the, the Swan Coastal Plain, and you head north towards Mount Magnet, which will be our first stop on this week's adventures on the road less travel heading from perth we headed up through and you can do it a variety of ways through mora uh, del Wananu, um, and then starting to head when you leave wuban uh, the wheat belt town of Wuban, you start to see the contours of the land starting to change and that is pretty much um, of what you expect of WA Outback which is uh, the red sands uh, the coastal plain gives way to the red tinges in the distance being Mount Gibson and as you head through Mount Gibson and towards Payne's Fine that's where you start to get a real glimpse of how outbacky it really is. The first stop for us this week is at Payne's Find. And in this time of year, the dazzling spring wildflowers and a rich seam of pioneering and prospecting histories can certainly be found in Payne's Find, where you can discover the legacy of the area's very first gold mine leaseholder with a visit to West Australia's only working gold battery and following the footsteps of other pioneering prospectors on the Miners Pathway Trail. And Payne's Find is uh, one of the destinations that you will here on the Australian TV show um, Aussie Gold Hunters, that's uh, where some of them uh, have established themselves. It's a small pastoral and mining community about five hours north of Perth on the Great Northern Highway and it's just one and a half hours from Woburn. It was named after prospector Thomas Payne who was the first to discover gold and register a lease for gold mining here and as a reward for his discovery he was allowed to crush his very first find of gold bearing ore through the state government battery which was free of charge for him. The battery was sold in 1987 but it still operates today making it the only working gold battery in Western Australia. Uh, a visit to the Battery Museum will also uncover a host of relics from the local mining pastoral and also sandalwood industries. If you're eager to learn more about the Murchison Gold Rush, you can hit the self-drive miners' pathway. It's a 970-kilometre trail which takes you on a journey back in time to the late 1800s where you can visit long-abandoned mining ghost towns. There's heritage buildings and relics that chart the history of the gold mining pioneers who flocked to the region in search of their fortunes. 
Now, from late July to September, thousands of nature lovers are drawn to the region by the promise of treasures of a different kind being floral. And as I mentioned earlier, the spring wildflower season turns the outback landscape into a blanket of vibrant colour. You can drop out and get a picnic in the blooms of pink, yellow and white everlastings while you spot emus, there's kangaroos, wedgetails, eagles and a whole lot of lizards in their natural habitat. Now, if you're making pains, find a rest stop along the miners' pathway self drive trail the roadhouse and tavern they offer outback style accommodation of food and as i mentioned earlier you'll find some motels hotels caravan parks and station stay accommodation options in and around the neighboring towns so i tell you what pain's fine it's all and I always say it's a lovely time but it is, it's got heritage, it's terrific it's um, not what you probably expect, as I said you're driving along for um, it's about an hour and a half as I mentioned from Woburn which is the last sort of um, uh, not uh, what what would we call that, wheat belt right on the fridge of the wheat belt so you're coming from farming and then you start heading into the harsher terrain and obviously gold mining and um, Payne's Fine it's um, out in the middle of nowhere but a cracking little town Plenty to see, and as I mentioned, uh, about 500-odd k's uh, north of Perth, about five to six hours via car. You can get petrol there at Mount Magnet or fuel. It's a fuel stop as well, but always would check ahead um, to make sure that um, a lot of these places are open when you happen to be uh, passing through if you need fuel and so forth and supplies. So from Payne's Find, you head north, well we did, we headed north to Mount Magnet and again you can also see as the terrain starts to change from red and orange rocky outcrops to flat desolate saltbush areas in the distance you can see um, what we would probably term as a a range of mountains, not very high but a range in, in the distance and it gives you a fine perspective of the areas, pretty much Australia's golden outback and Mount Magnet lives up to its role as the hub of the Murchison and it's the longest surviving gold mining settlement in Western Australia. Situated four and a half hours drive east of Geraldton on the Great Northern Highway, it can be the perfect base for exploring the Gascoigne Murchison region and offers rich pickings for those interested like myself in gold prospecting and fossicking and gold rush history. The attractions of Mount Magnet, well you can follow the 37 kilometre tourist trail from the town centre through the old and the new gold mine sites to take in the spectacular views from Warmbrew Hill and explore the area's magnificent granite rock formations, including a natural amphitheatre and cave. You can also catch a movie at the town's original open-air film theatre, summer months only. It's one of only three traditional outdoor cinemas still operating in Western Australia. You can also check out the Mining and Pastoral Museum in town, and it's, it's, it has an extensive collection of mining and farming relics. Through May and October, when you do a visit there, you can attend one of the town's many horse racing meetings. And you can also try your luck at gold prospecting and fossicking, explore the remains of the abandoned settlements such as Lennonville, and come in spring, see the spectacular carpets of wildfires, wildflowers. Now, Mount Magnet's well serviced by two service stations. There's a supermarket there, cafe, butcher, there's a nursing post and post office. There is a hotel, a motel, backpacker and lodge accommodation is also available on Mount Magnet as well as a caravan park which we've stayed at and the nearby station stays as well. You can also fly to Mount Magnet as well through Skipper's Aviation and you can check out more of what's happening at mountmagnet.wa.gov.au for more details about accommodation and attractions to do.
But three, we stayed at the Mount Magnet Caravan Park. There's also a visitor's centre there as well. Um, there's the, as I mentioned, the Mount Magnet uh, Mining and Pasture Museum. You can also go on the Murchison Geo Region Trail, um, Gascoigne Murchison Outback Pathways as well. So there's plenty to see and do. Also, you can check out the Greenwich, which are a significant Aboriginal rock art site, nine kilometres north of Mount Magnet. It's a place of strong cultural significance to the, Bad, I think it's called Badamia tribe. So uh, plenty of things to check out there too. And there's a local art centre which was established to develop and showcase Aboriginal artists from Mount Magnet, Yelgu, Mikathara, uh, Q and Sandstone as well. So a great little place to base yourself is Mount Magnet. And I will let you know that certain times of year, Mount Magnet gets extremely hot, obviously, in the summer months heading towards late spring and midsummer gets terrifically hot up there with temperatures in excess of 45 degrees and also you can be as we have experienced previously caught in the midst of uh, torrential downpours and you can be trapped on the Great Northern Highway for hours if not days uh, due to uh, inclement weather so just bear that in mind when I spoke to you about the uh, outback pathways these feature uh, three self-drive trails around Gascoigne Murchison which traverse the red heart of WA each of these trails is complemented by a series of roadside uh, interpretive signs which opens your eyes to the wonders of this ancient uh, ancient landscape, and it's a fantastic landscape. You can be driving by an area that was once home to a prehistoric seabed. Uh, fossils in the rocks bear tribute to this other age. Or perhaps when you're driving along, the wheel ruts of wool wagons that trundled these then remote areas at the turn of the 20th century. You may be at the site of a long abandoned gold rush township, crumbling buildings being the only clue to the, count, the town's once bustling days. Or maybe you're in an area of special Aboriginal significance. Whatever the case, the outback pathway signage will reveal the region natural, indigenous and historical secrets. Now Mount Magnet is truly one of the magnetic centres of the outback and the longest continuous gold mining centre in WA. By following in the path of the early pastoralist gold prospectors and astronomers, you can discover ancient landscapes, as I mentioned, and dazzling wildflower country. Now, reach Mount Magnet from, ironically, four points of the compass on sealed roads. Along the way, though, you can spare a thought for the region's very first pastoralists, Watson and Jones. It sounds like a solicitor's mob, doesn't it? Watson and Jones walked their sheep from the coast in the late 1870s. Or you can follow the trail and the history of colonial explorers Robert Austin, who named the nearby hills Mount Magnet and West Mount Magnet in 1854 when he discovered the magnetic rocks interfered with his compass. West Mount Magnet, which towers over the town, offers sweeping views of the outback plains beyond, which was later given back by its Aboriginal name, Warrumboo, meaning camping place. From May, when the overarching emu constellation has particular meaning for the local people, you can explore the night skies and discover their ancient culture. It also invites you to the local Windara Bana Art Centre to discover the fine work of the region's Indigenous artists. There are ample opportunities to dig deep into the gold rush history too, taking you back to July 1891. And that's when rich deposits of reef gold were struck on the east side of the mount and nuggets of alluvial gold were dug up like potatoes, they say, at Poverty Flats. 
Mount Magnet was proclaimed a township soon after and much of its original architecture has been well preserved. You can marvel at stories of heroism, hope and hardship at the Mount Magnet Mining and Pastoral Museum, which also houses a world-class rock exhibition, including rare orbicular granite. Hit the Heritage Walks, take a day trip to Kew, Yelgu and Sandstone, try your luck at prospecting or explore the eerie remains of long-abandoned gold rush settlements and they are extremely eerie, I must say. To make it your outback base, check out the hotels, the motels. There's a caravan park, as mentioned, self-contained units, or you can immerse yourself in an outback life with a stay at an authentic sheep station. Make sure you make the journey if you can between July and September, and that's when you'll see the desert plains carpeted in the colourful blooms of West Australia's wildflowers. More information, as I said, you can jump onto the Mount Magnet uh, local tourism uh, website there, which we've already provided, and uh, you just make Mount Magnet your uh, your base. It's uh, one of the best places that we've uh, had the opportunity to, to do a lot of exploring, and bearing in mind that uh, I have a, a fond of being a hobby as far as gold prospecting and detecting and that is concerned it's a great place to base yourself there at mount magnet a lot of people say is there gold there well yes there is and like anywhere you have to search for it you always say when you're out there uh, gold prospecting if you don't find anything that's tomorrow's the day but sometimes it never will be the day you just keep looking 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 until and that's what part of the gold fever search is it's uh, waiting to find that elusive nugget and it's uh, a full-on camping trip uh, you've got to be prepared to rough it, I guess, too, when you're out gold prospecting. And the, also around that area, it was bitterly cold at night. So uh, look at going at the warmer times. Yeah, though, having said that, half the fun is sitting around a campfire at night talking about what the uh, what we'd done that day. So armed with metal detector and maps of old mines, the search for gold in the vast landscape of WA's outback is a case of suck it and see. You look out at areas that look good and you can find everything under the sun. Out in this area, there are old campsites. There's half-demolished buildings where we found some old pennies and shillings. And in the creek beds, there's old bullets where they've obviously been shooting rabbits and roos for tea in the early gold rush days. It's certainly a pain in the backside finding that every time the detector goes off, you think it's going to be gold, and it's not. And attempts to uncover nuggets can involve anything from digging through rock and clay with picks, and occasionally you've got to get out the trusty crowbar. So um, you can walk and walk and walk up kilometres down hills and off mountains, um, but you can certainly enjoy the, the area. And if you do your research, you can certainly find gold. And the gleam in the eyes is uh, always the finding of gold. Just uh, It's something attractive about it. So do your research. There is gold out there, and um, you can find anything from a tiny nugget right up to big nuggets, and there's uh, still alluvial gold to find out there. Do your research and uh, you'll be able to do it. Make sure you get yourself a miner's right to prospect in your particular area in WA. Fossil King isn't allowed in national parks, nature reserves or on Aboriginal land heritage sites or in towns, but make sure that you go to uh, the local websites. Um, I know that the dmp.wa.gov.au is the website to check out. It's the Government of WA's Department of Mines, Industry Regulation and Safety. Make sure you get a miner's right and jump onto their website because it will actually show you where you can go prospecting, how much a miner's right is, Foster King in WA and some safety tips as well, plus the penalties and your obligations when prospecting too. So uh, check that out. It's www.dmp.wa.gov.au.
We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll head north out of Mount Magnet. More in a moment. The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast. Hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. So you leave Mount Magnet and you head probably about an hour north of the town. We head to the historic gold mining town known as the Queen of the Murchison, Kew. Kew was once the centre of the Murchison Goldfields with a population of more than 10,000 people. Today, Kew is almost a ghost town. It has a very small population and many of the impressive buildings constructed during the gold rush period are not empty or in ruins. They are a reminder that the miners who arrived in the town in the early 1890s and made their fortune on the rich gold reefs which surrounded the town were determined to show to build a solid town of substance and importance. The appeal of the timelines in its remnants, it's a reminder that all mining towns are only existing really as long as the prices are good and that the minerals there are plentiful. Kew is located uh, about 670 kilometres northeast of Perth, again via the Great Northern Highway. In 1893, Kew was officially named after a prospector, Thomas Kew, who travelled to Nanine and registered a gold claim. Ironically, Kew was not the first European to find gold in the district. The first prospector was possibly Michael John Fitzgerald, who, with a friend Edward Heffernan, found 260 ounces of gold near what is now the main street of Kew. They told Tom Kew about their discovery, and he travelled to Nanine and registered their claim. Kew is a wonderland of impressive historic buildings. Like so many gold mining towns, it's believed it was going to last forever, and consequently, Consequently, they built solid uh, buildings and foundations designed to last for centuries. The most impressive buildings, most notably the Gentlemen's Club, the Old Jail, the Government Buildings and the Masonic Lodge are easy to access, most are even on the main street, and they offer a unique view into a time when this near-ghost town was once a thriving mining centre. Looking at the town now, it's hard to imagine that in 1901, May Vivian, in her travels in Western Australia, wrote of the town, At last I saw the lights of Kew, electric lights in the streets, horses and carts, the shrill whistle of the railway engine, boys calling out the evening papers, all told me that I had emerged emerged rather from the back box and once once more nearing the metropolis. The Masonic Hall is located in Downley Street, which is one block west of the main street. It was built after a design by E. Owens Hughes. The plaque outside details the history that it was built in 1899 of timber and galvanised iron with a pressed steel a pressed tin interior rather. This unusual building is said to be the largest corrugated iron structure in the southern hemisphere. Now, the lodge itself was consecrated on the 21st of April 1897 and brethren often travelled from as far away as Big Bell to attend the monthly meetings. The lodge was closed in 1979. It is now owned by the National Trust and is reputedly the largest freestanding two-storey corrugated iron structure in the country. The band Rotunda is located prominently in the main street. The plaque on the Rotunda records that this rare octagonal bandstand built in 1904 and dedicated to the pioneers of the Murchison region. 
It was a popular meeting place in the early years of the settlement and the town's band played here on Saturday nights. The drinking fountain was added in 1934. The spill says it was originally built to cover the town's first well, which was believed to have been responsible for an outbreak of typhoid. At the northern end of the main street are the Shire offices, which were originally a gentleman's club called the Murchison Chambers. Now, this stone building was financed by the London and West Australian Investment Company and had 18 offices and two shops. By January 1901, the upper floor became home to the Murchison Club, used by Kew's leading business, mining, pastoral and professional men. It was later become known as the Gentlemen's Club. In the 1980s, the local shire received funds to restore the building and it has been the shire offices ever since. Also located on Kew's Main Street are the government buildings which were built between 1895 and 1897 to house the Warden's Court, the Post Office and Police Station. They were constructed constructed from locally quarried limestone slabs and additions were made in 1897 and 1898. The Post Office, Police Station and Courthouse are still used today. The clock on the post office was given to the town by Sir John Forrest, a source of aggravation for post office employees as it had to be wound every 24 hours, a task which was involving climbing a ladder and pulling the counterweight back into the tower. The Kew Caravan Park now houses the old jail, which was built to a design provided by the WA Architectural Department in 1896. It was not designed as a permanent jail, but rather as a place to hold prisoners who were being transported to the larger centres on the coast. It ceased to be used in 1914, although it's still operating as a lock-up until the 1930s. To the southwest of the town, you can follow the signs on the road into town, there are the ruins of the old hospital. Kew's first hospital was a canvas and bow shed set up north of the town in July 1892 after that outbreak of typhoid fever, which some think emanated from a well where the rotunda now stands. In 1895, a new hospital made of local stone was built on the site of the ruins. It was characterised by spacious wards and wide shade wide shady verandas out the back is a chimney which is the ruins of the hospital's crematorium the hospital closed in 1942 and now only the ruins are left located in robinson street the municipal chambers built building that was officially opened in 1896 the first council meeting was held with everyone standing up there were no chairs today it's home to the local resource center and visitor information center there are plenty of other attractions in the area of Kew. Located five kilometres to the south of the town is the historic settlement of Day Dawn. It is now just a few ruins reminding visitors that this once was a huge settlement of over 3,000 people. There is a photograph upstairs in the Shire Council offices of Day Dawn in 1906 which shows it as just a simply thriving settlement. It's an insight into the way mining mining towns thrive and as soon as they thrive they just can turn around and disappear. Today all that is left of the Great Fingal Mine Office which was a magnificent building which the Murchison Advocate, Advocate newspaper described as an object lesson for the Murchison in mason work. The rooms are lofty, windows numerous and the whole structure is surrounded by a wide and massive veranda. Sadly, it suffered damage and is now not accessible. Located 48 kilometres west of Kew, we'll head there in a moment, is Wolga Rock, one of the finest exhibits of Aboriginal art in Western Australia. Of particular interest is the white square-rigged sailing ship with two masts and square portholes. This strange depiction of a white ship is over 300 kilometres from the sea. 
Now, no accurate date can be placed on the painting, although it was almost certainly executed before 1900. We'll talk about that in a moment. Located about 60 k's north of Kew is the Wiljimia Road, where the vast red ochre deposits of Wiljimia. They are the largest and deepest underground Aboriginal ochre mines and have all the features found in traditional Aboriginal mines, which is large open-cut pits, excavated caverns and underground galleries that follow ochre seams. What is remarkable about the area is that there's three colours of ochre found and each relates to a different part of the Malu, which is the red ochre is in his blood, the yellow ochre is his liver and the green ochre is his gall. According to local Aboriginal law in the Dreamtime, the spirit being Moondog speared a giant kangaroo which leapt over Weld Range and landed at Wiljimia. In its death throes, the giant kangaroo dug a cave in which its blood spilt. The blood became the red ochre, and the bile from the animal's liver became the yellow and green ochre. It is estimated that the site has been mined for at least the last 1,000 years, and over 40,000 tonnes of ochre has been removed and bartered all over West Australia. Not surprisingly, Widjimia is regarded as one of the most important and sacred Aboriginal sites in WA, but is not open or available to the general public. You can check with the Q Shire Council if you wish to visit. For more information, I really encourage you to check out www.environment.gov.au slash heritage places national Wiljimia. Check it out. Located 20 kilometres north of Kew, Lake Nullin is one of those desert lakes which dries up through Lacarain. It is a wonderful wonderland of bird life and rich wildflower wildflower displays when the rains have fallen. Check and see if there's been rain. It's certainly worth visiting when it has water. Now, located 40 kilometres from Kew on the Big Bell Road is the ghost town of Big Bell, which once was another vibrant mining town with a hospital, a picture theatre and a classy hotel. The way to experience the ghost town is to mooch around the ruins and read the very informative interpretive signage. And there's also a useful brochure, Big Bell, a Goldfields ghost town, which has a map identifying all of the interpretive signs explaining how the town existed from 1936 to 55 and how from 1937 to 51 it produced 726,298 fine ounces of gold worth nearly £9 million. Unbelievable. When planning a trip there, just uh, jump on and check out the local guides. There's places like um, uh, the uh, Australia's Golden Outback.com is what I was trying to get to. And check out destinations slash Q. Q has plenty of accommodation, hotel, motel, bed and breakfast. You can search accommodations by the location or jump onto the Shire's website, which is www.q .wa.gov.au for more information about Q in Western Australia. And as I mentioned, we'll be going very shortly to Welga Rock. It's a huge monolith where you can see the latest, uh, the latest, the largest gallery of Aboriginal rock paintings in Western Australia. Now, I had actually heard about Welga Rock from work colleagues over the time. This is one of the places they said, you've got to go and visit. It's just out in the middle of nowhere. So 48 kilometres west of Kew is Welga Rock. It's one of the largest granite monoliths in Australia. And it is of profound cultural significance to Aboriginal people and it's they are the acknowledged traditional owners. It's an extensive gallery of Aboriginal art that exists within a cave in Welga Rock. Now, a painting of what appears at first glance to be a sailing ship appears superimposed over some of the early wor earlier works and underneath there are lines of writing that, while resembling a, a, a sort of an Arabic, 
Arabic, that's it, I'm getting excited, Arabic script, they haven't been identified. While the Indigenous gallery is in itself remarkable, there's been a great deal of speculation about the painting, especially considering it's located over 300 kilometres from the coast. It has been argued that it was drawn by survivors of the heavily armed three-mastered Dutch East India Company uh, ships Batavia, or I think it's called uh, Zoidorp, I can't remember how to pronounce it, or that it represents a contact painting by Indigenous Australians who sure saw a ship on the coast and then moved inland. Those believing the images represent uh, the Dutch East Indies ship are of the opinion that the middle or main mast of the three shown in the Wolga uh, rock images had broken and fallen overboard. Rat lines, which enable the crew to scale the rigging, and some stays holding the mast vertically are depicted and seven gun ports are evident along the hull. Of the two mastered colonial steamships operating in the northwest of Australia, SS Xantho, owned by the controversial perler and pastoralist Edward, uh, Charles Edward Broadhurst, was of such importance as the state's first coastal steamer, it is likely possibility as the inspiration of the Wolga Rock painting. It is also possible that the Wolga Rock gun ports may not be false at all rather they are square or rectangular scuttles or portholes that can be opened like a gun port these often appeared on ferries designed to operate in sheltered waters and were open for the comfort of its passengers when traveling in calm waters and when it got too hot below the decks when the uh, ss santo was built in 1848 as a ferry reference was made to its contract to it being similar to the ps Loch Lomond, which is known to have rectangular rect- rectangular ventilation ports. So, research conducted by Midwest historian Stan Gratty, based on interviews conducted with the old Q residents and local stationized identities, shows that the Wolga Rock painting was produced around 1917, at the time when Sammy Willey, also known as Sammy Hayson, is recorded to arrive there from Shark Bay. Apparently a Malay, which is the name generally, but incorrectly describing um, indentured labourers who came to the northwest from the islands north of Australia. Sammy Hassan remained camped at um, Sammy Well Outstation, which was on the northeast end of Dirk Hartog Island, before leaving the bay to join his people at a well near Welga Rock. As Shark Bay legend has it, Sammy Malay was dying from a shark bite at his out camp and anthropologist Esme Webb disputes that Sammy Malay connection, more research though they say, is required. Either way, it is possible that Sammy Hassan was one of the many hundred of indentured Malay pearl divers who were transported to the northwest of Australia in the, in the early 1870s. Of these, 140 boys aged between 12 and 14 were transported on the SS Santo from Batavia. And, for example, some of them were abandoned by Broadhurst at Geraldton when the, the ship sank in 1872 and many others suffered a similar fate three years later in Shark Bay. While there are many examples of Indigenous art depicting vessels on the West Australian coast, including others showing what appears to be the SS Antho and possibly another steamer at, um, I think it's in Nutha Station, east of Cossack, the Wolga Rock painting is one of the most inland examples. Recently, Malayan visitors to the Shipwreck Museum in Fremantle advised that they felt the four lines underneath the ship could represent a Jawai, which is a Malay uh, Arabic script. Recent research into that possibility, though, has not established a link either. So it's certainly very interesting. It's a great place to visit, uh, not just for that aspect as well, but it's one of the highest points in the area. 
Walga Rock and it has a profound significance to the Aboriginal people in the area. Certainly well worth a visit uh, to check out some fantastic Aboriginal artwork as well. That's it for this week's episode of The Road Less Travel. Thanks so much for your company. As always, we look forward to your company. And you can check out the various episodes of the podcast through our website, www.fatcatmedia.com.au. My name's Nikki Shea, and I look forward to joining you somewhere on The Road Less Travelled. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. This has been The Road Less Travelled, a podcast about travelling and camping on the road. Written and hosted by me, Nikki Shea, produced by Fat Cat Media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, please leave a review. Any comments or questions, please email fatcat at iinet.net.au and to be notified on the new episodes, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed.